to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby. Hello. Uh, joining me as always is the ever dependable Ed Davis. How are you going, sir? Yeah, doing very, very well and uh, still reeling from uh, our poor showing uh, predicting the Oscars this week. Yeah, it was uh, the Oscars was last week. We made the predictions two weeks ago. How did we fare? Uh, we got, we actually, in terms of our eight predictions we made, we got uh, most of them right. Mm. We were both wrong on picture. I said Boyhood and you said Grand Budapest Hotel. But we got uh, director right. Uh, we got ed- uh, sound mixing, yeah. which we joked about and said that Whiplash should do it. But we got that correct. Uh, the only other one we got wrong was uh, was Birdman, um, which uh, was uh, sorry best actor, which we predicted would go for Michael Keaton, and it didn't. So uh, in terms of just predicting six uh, eight awards, we didn't do too badly. But I don't know what kind of percentage that is. It's maybe like ninety nine percent, I reckon. But uh... I think so. Yeah, I think that's pretty decent for a first stab at it. Yeah, I mean, you'd need a mathematician to work that out, and I'm from the humanities, so. Mm, yeah. Um, but let's. I think if you round up, it's probably close to ninety nine percent correct. Mm, yeah, pretty much. Um, what did you think of the Oscars? Did you did you watch the telecast? I did watch the telecast. I thought it started very very well, and then it just became a bit of a grind as as things went on. Mm, Neil Patrick Harris has taken some hammer this week. I think it's kind of uh, undeserved, although. Uh, what from what I saw of it, he kind of did an all right job. Um, yeah, but you know, yeah, maybe. he was. I would say he was good. He was a good host. He had a lot of energy, and he tried to make everything work as much as possible. But the writing was by and large awful. Mm. Um, outside of the intro, because it had some really fun musical numbers, and and it had a, just a lot of kind of witty, uh, witty stuff going on. But then as it got on, I think his kind of light touch got ground down a little bit by. Just what an enormous uh, sink the uh, the Oscars actually is. Mm. Um, weird to see that, like, uh, kind of as soon as Birdman was crowned Best Picture, literally as soon as Birdman's been crowned Best Picture, um, just instant backlash. Uh, Twitter was kind of almost uninhabitable for like a day or so afterwards. With people saying, "Well, Birdman wasn't that good." Yeah, um, I think it's just one of the real problems of. Award season in general, but this year particularly bad because you know I I said to you off my I thought the Birdman was was pretty good I enjoyed it and uh, but you know I didn't think it was the best picture but I wouldn't be that upset if it did win but because um, award season forces you to kind of pick sides between all of these films um, if your personal favorite doesn't win you kind of feel slighted by it so even though I did I liked Birdman like immediately after he was winning I was just like oh that's ridiculous. And then immediately having a backlash to my own backlash, saying, why do you care? <laughs> <laughs> it's like you didn't even want Boyhood to win. You wanted Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. But it's quite a virulent backlash. Is the, is the film that divisive, or are people just being very fickle? I think the problem is, it's kind of like when the artist won, because there was a big backlash against the artist at the time as well. I think when you have a film that is kind of a trifle, not like it's badly made or anything, but that it's kind of doesn't have a huge amount of import to say and it's about you know creating art or something people see it as just kind of indulgent for the academy to award it something mm. yeah and also like uh, very much like the artist what kind of set it apart from a film you know uh, uh, what made it kind of uh, anything but an otherwise ordinary film uh, in the artist's case uh, the fact that it was a silent movie in the Birdman's uh, case there was shot uh, to appear that it's done in one take uh, is instantly dismissed as a gimmick as soon as as soon as uh, it wins Best Picture. Mm, and the same happened with Boyhood as well. There was a very much kind of like you know I could have done that about mm. Boyhood about you know assembling a film over twelve years. Mm. I um, could have done that aged twelve years. <laughs> I could have just aged twelve years in real time. Anyway, we all aged that. twelve years. None of us yeah. are nominated for Oscars. I know. <laughs> yeah, what makes that kid so special? But, you know, that, that is the ridiculousness of it. it. You know, it is something that people, no one had really tried before. 
Um, you know, no one had sat down and made that the explicit aim of a project to chronicle 12 years of someone's life as they grow up. And I think that uh, people just kind of said, oh, you know, Michael Apted did it or whatever as a way of dismissing it entirely in a way that was uh, wholly unfair. Mm. Michael Apted also made a really bad Bond film. So, you know. And he directed Richard... a Narnia film, so. Holy shit, Richard Linklater hasn't done either of those things. He's miles ahead. I know. Uh, apart from backlashing your own backlash, um, what else have you been up to this week? Oh, you know, you know, watching films and the like. Uh, I watched a film that you'd recommended to me quite a few times. I watched a documentary called Paul Williams Still Alive, mm. which is spoiler a document- spoiler alert in the title. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, a documentary about Paul Williams, who people may not know. His name, but they'll probably know at least one of the dozens of songs he wrote. He wrote songs in the 70s for The Carpenters. He wrote songs for The Muppet Movie. Um, he wrote recently, all of Bugsy Malone's songs. Yep. Um, more recently, he sang on uh, Daft Punk's last album, which is where I kind of became aware of his existence. Uh, and the film is, you know, a fan who was someone who really loved his work in the 70s and 80s when he not only like sang and wrote all these songs, but also was a kind of a staple of a lot of kitschy 70s TV um, and uh, then he just kind of disappeared. So the guy who made the film, I think his name's Stephen Kessler, uh, he assumed that Paul Williams must have died young and succumbed to his various addictions, uh, and then was shocked to discover that he is still alive. And then he, you know, goes to see him in Winnipeg, where people are oddly obsessed with uh, the film Phantom of the Paradise, which is uh, one of the big cornerstones of Williams' uh, filmography. And there he starts following him around, and I thought it was a really interesting look at a guy who uh, it seems really determined not to be seen as just a relic of the 70s and as someone who was just known for being a drunk and a drug addict and uh, a filmmaker who wants him to talk about nothing but that Mm. yeah when I saw it and like and the reason I thought about it is because we talked on the show before how how much you liked the film the song Rainbow Connection Mm -hmm. Um, so that's instantly why I recommended it to you but when I watched it, like my overriding thought with literally every 10 minutes that passed was, how the fuck didn't I know any of what, you know, how did I not know who this guy was? How is it possible that, like, and then all, and then all of a sudden he's kind of, you know, like getting this kind of renaissance that's coming after that. Like you say, he's on Daft, Daft Punk's album, he cameoed in the last season of Community, I believe. Yes, um, that's correct. He just kind of popped up. But, like, you just think, well, how, how the fuck did someone this significant and this kind of, who had such an impact on popular culture slip through the, uh, slip through the net somehow mm, yeah I thought that a good alternate title of it could have been Paul Williams oh he wrote that because mm, that so is that... the thing I thought about once every five minutes <laughs> yeah that is uh, yeah it's a pretty good film um, it's on yeah, both all Netflixes I think all regions so it's uh, well worth uh, kind of uh, seeking out if you can um, I have uh, finally picked up uh, after a year off um, my wife has never seen The Wire, um, and uh, we watched seasons one to three um, very quickly, but then kind of came to a kind of natural break and, and uh, never really found the time to go back to it. And we started season four earlier this week, and um, just kind of enjoying very much being back in uh, Baltimore uh, for what is that show's best season. Yeah, that's uh, an amazing season of television. Obviously, it's an amazing show. Um and obviously, once you've watched it all, you can force her to listen to our episode on it. Oh well, yeah. And uh, I, the, what I would say is that uh, after one episode, after meeting uh, the the kind of four young boys, Namond, Randy, uh, Dookie, and Michael, um, she was like, "I love these guys," and I was like, mm. "Oh dear, this is this is going to be a thing now. I'm going to have to <laughs> comfort her late at night with with a kind of like absolute heartbreak of that show and what that kind of brings." Yeah, the four most likable characters who have the absolute roughest road <laughs> of probably anyone. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of uh, uh, a great uh, series. But the very bad theme tune, well, the kind of my, definitely my least favourite theme tune out of all five. Is that the one where it's kind of got a, a remix and a rap on it? Yeah, a little bit of a rap and a kind of a remixy feel to it. Yeah, it doesn't have the, the drunken splendour of the Tom Waits original. Mm, absolutely. Anyway... Um, kind of moving on, we're supposed to talk about something this week. What are we talking about, Ed? We're talking about the NBC sitcom Parks and Recreation, which aired its final episode this week uh, You know, and ended its seventh season on the air. 
Um, and why are we talking about Parks and Recreation? Um, we like it, don't we? Yes, we like we love it and we like it to uh, paraphrase um, uh, Leslie Nope's wedding vows. Mm, yeah, um, season seven, um, like you say, uh, the very last one, um, took a bit of a gamble, kind of uh, uh, stylistically, and that at the end of season six, um, they did quite the bold move of, of showing us a flash forward to um, the events of season seven or the events preceding season seven, and they'd leapt three years through time. Which is quite a bold thing to do. It is, yeah. I think it was, it was especially funny reading about the production of the show, saying how that was something they intended to do because the sixth season ended with the revelation that Leslie Nope, played by Amy Poehler, was, was pregnant and she was going to have triplets. And they basically said, we don't want to do another a season of her having to you know raise the kids and everything because they'd just done uh, a season of baby stuff with uh, Anne and Chris. So they decided they wanted to do something new and that involved jumping three years into the future and they said that they put it at the end of the sixth season because uh when they were making the episode they realized that it felt like a series finale without the kind of three-year time jump and they wanted to they didn't want people to think oh the show is over and not tune in for the seventh season so they kind of snuck that in at the end just to make sure people would know <laughs> that it was uh, still a going concern mm, as bold as it is and as kind of uh, interesting a thing to do uh, as it is, it kind of created a lot of comic possibilities, didn't it? There was a lot of kind of uh, kind of fun to be had with uh, talking about what had happened in culture and life in the, the three-year gap. Mm, yeah, I, I think that was one of the great sources of the, the kind of comic engine of the season that was the little details, things like saying that Shia LaBeouf now designs wedding dresses, <laughs> um, which is just a delightfully absurd and weird little choice, but... Also, there's they had all these you know new forms of technology, the uh, kind of holographic evolution of the iPad and things like that, which uh, felt like a very natural evolution. But the the idea of it all coming to fruition and being commonplace within three years uh, was you know delightfully absurd. Mm. I think one of my favourite um, kind of story or kind of plot points that was kind of um, brought out of that time shift was the episode where Ben can't remember signing uh, the the big kind of like uh, legal document from Grizzle and kind of when he looks and looks and looks and tries to find out how he signed it without noticing that he was signing something that had a kind of very damaging small print in it. The date said that it was the day that Star Wars Episode Seven was released and that was the only day that he would have not been paying attention enough um, <laughs> and would have signed something like that without knowing it. And I thought that was quite a nice touch because that's, you know, you know uh, he would lose his shit on that day. Mm, I also liked the kind of in-world uh, bit advancements, like the the way they hinted at the fact that uh, Joan Calamezzo had had a massive nervous breakdown and released like six books in three years and uh, April had become obsessed with her and things like that, which I thought was a nice... Uh, that was another way that they could play was not only had the world in general moved on in these ways, but the characters were in entirely different places in their lives as well. Mm. And it seems to me that, um, uh, well, okay, I, th- I thought that the season seven and the season seven finale was a very, very fitting way to uh, to wrap up the season and the series. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah, I thought that the season itself, it reminded me a lot of the final season of 30 Rock, where mm-hmm. both shows obviously lasted the same number of seasons, but they both went in knowing that it was going to be the last season, and they built the show towards that end by ensuring that uh, every episode kind of moved the characters on in their life or gave them some some sense of where they're going to be once the cameras stop rolling and the idea that when everything is said and done, the characters will exist and they'll have kind of paths that they go on in life, which really uh, came to fruition in the final episode where we got to see where they'll be in, you know, 30 or 40 years in some cases. Um, mm. Kind of a like, like the end of 60 Under where they showed how everyone died, uh, but uh, a little more lighthearted than that <laughs> and a little more kind of warm and cuddly. Mm. Well, Jerry slash Gary, uh, we, we found out how he dies. Uh, the end of Parks and Recreation, but yeah, obviously he's the one who's going to die out of everyone. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a very effective last episode. Um, like you say, we kind of have this uh, kind of uh, 
narrative device where Leslie will kind of uh, make physical contact with with a character and then we kind of flash forward and see how they end up and in every single case um, although it did feel odd to have Craig in there even though he's kind of like he is a kind of a memorable addition to the cast he's only been there for you know best part of 20 episodes uh, and all of a sudden he gets a kind of a story but then it does kind of work out and kind of is uh, fun so I'll kind of let them off um, but yeah each each kind of uh, ending to each character's story is, is a really lovely way to say goodbye to those characters that we've kind of you know come to know and love mm, and I saw some I think what's what's interesting to me about it is the way in which the finale was received versus say the finale of Breaking Bad two years ago mm. because I think both are to an extent kind of wish fulfillment uh in that they both kind of give the audience what they want and arguably, certainly the detractors would say they gave them too much of they, what they wanted. That's the main kind of critique of the final episode from people who didn't like it was they said, you know, it it was too, like for a show that was even as positive as Park and Rec, it was almost too positive. And I don't really agree. I can definitely see why they would think that. But what's interesting is that even the people who say that don't feel like, oh, it ruined the show or that it would kind of left them feeling like it, it was it didn't leave them thinking it was a sour note to end on whereas you know when breaking bad ended that was uh, a common criticism was people said that it ended in a way that sort of ruined it for them and mm. um, i just think it's i was just wondering why that is if it's because comedies are undervalued or if it's just this sense of no one was watching parks and rec for the the ongoing narrative yeah i think that's probably got something to do with it and i think um, people um, wanted closure, right? Mm-hmm. On on Breaking Bad, they wanted a, an end, and fifty percent of the people got the end they want, and fifty percent of the people got the end they they kind of didn't want. With Parks and Recreation, kind of people just wanted to see those characters happy, and mm. I think that's why people are much more forgiving of a of an ending that is is kind of unashamedly sentimental. And also, I think you know, like you say, they wanted closure on Breaking Bad and saying they want to see how it all ends up. Whereas I think with something like Parks and Rec, which was a show that was going out at the height of its powers, everyone was thinking, mm, I, I would, wouldn't mind seeing these guys come back for another 13 episodes next year. Mm. But, and, you know, thinking, but also having that bit of sweet th- feeling, thinking the show's great. It had at least six incredibly strong seasons and one, you know, kind of shaky start. Um, you know, I think that it, it felt that this is a good place for them to end as opposed to, say, The Office, its kind of spiritual predecessor, which uh, had used up an awful lot of its goodwill by the time it ended. Yeah, it, it really did go out at the right time, um, Parks and Recreation. It really did kind of leave people uh, wanting more rather than kind of begging for a kind of merciful death like The Office. You say we kind of have to talk about The Office, really, in the con- when we talk about Parks and Recreation, it's kind of hard not to and we'll kind of get into that a little bit kind of later but you know uh, Parks and Recreation did suffer you know casts leaving and kind of you know you know, people like Rob Lowe and, and Rashida Jones kind of people who are integral to why the show was great uh, leaving and, and being kind of replaced but unlike The Office um, Parks and Recreation managed to survive those uh, departures. Mm, I think and even going back to you know very early on when Paul Schneider left, you know, who... Uh, who? You know, I, I know, exactly. Uh, Mark Brandanowitz, who at one point was the third build star, and now I have to remind myself that he was even a character, even though I liked that character, and I thought he was really funny. It's like a guy who seemed so central, and then by, you know, by Paul Schneider's own admission, uh, the show kind of started not really knowing what to do with him and moved away from his initial role as a romantic lead that I didn't really feel... It didn't really make sense for him to hang around anymore. Mm. Um, it still feels really weird to think that at one point there was this really major character who just left, and then it felt like, oh, you know, I don't really miss them. <laughs> mm. Well, that's it. Is like you know to do the old uh, red letter media joke without describing uh, Paul Schneider's character, uh, you know, by what they look like or who plays them. What what is Mark Brandanowitz's character? Uh, he's there <laughs> he's a caucasian male he i think yeah he, he he filled a similar role to what adam scott ended up fulfilling which is that he was 
the straight man who was always a little bit bemused by everyone else's antics and was never that crazy except for the time he accidentally revealed that uh, Jerry was adopted um, mm. and in doing so kind of launched the ongoing joke of uh, Jerry having the absolute worst life um, in in work and then the absolute best one outside of work. Yeah, it's it's weird. We'll, we'll kind of rewind uh, to the very, very kind of start of Parks Recreation um, because it kind of seems like a, a decent place to begin uh, kind of picking it apart, as it were. It did start as what was intended to be a spin-off of The Office, the same creators, um, were behind it, and there was there was kind of a, a they wanted to get a direct spin off with Rashida Jones's character from The Office, although that would have been the fucking dullest spin off imaginable. But what they ended up doing was essentially remaking The Office in a different, um, different uh, kind of place in a different office, basically. Um, and it took one season to realize, and I just rewatched this season this week. Um, it's only six episodes long, so it doesn't. Doesn't really take much to to get through it, but um, it really doesn't work at all, does it? It's almost unrecognisable uh, to the show that that Parks and Rec became. It, it hues much too close to the Office template. Obviously, visually, it has the mockumentary style which it maintained throughout. Although it was never as kind of stringent as the Office was mm-hmm. in maintaining the idea that there was a film crew there. It became more a sense of you know we're going to use a handheld style, and occasionally people will talk to camera kind of giving out their thoughts really and just using it as a as an internal monologue which um frustrated me for the very longest time because <laughs> it was just a sense of watching it and thinking what is this you know who's filming this documentary who's gonna watch it um uh, which was always just really very weird to me but uh the, the the and then the character of leslie initially was a little too close to a michael scott type um, mm. someone who was kind of just in the way and kind of a ridiculous figure and everyone was against them yeah she kind of started out as being um uh, a bit clueless a bit kind of uh, behind the pace um mm-hmm. someone who was kind of like uh, fairly kind of ditzy um and then kind of very quickly became probably the greatest woman who ever lived mm, i think in large part it was they didn't tweak her character so much as they which they did a little bit but more they tweaked how everyone responded to her. It no mm. longer felt that she was uh, kind of bullying everyone, although as the show got on, it, it would occasionally do that uh, in a different way. Uh, it felt like everyone genuinely liked her and just found her was occasionally a bit bemused by how enthusiastic she was, as opposed to kind of viewing her with actual kind of uh, bewilderment and not getting a sense that these people actually liked being with her at any point. Mm. Um, and it's interesting to note that as as a kind of spin-off of The Office or a kind of like a sister show to The Office, as it were, The Office also struggled in its first season. Mm. Uh, but that, that struggled in the sense that they were just essentially trying to replicate the British version and realised very quickly that it didn't work. But the changes, the, the, the change in uh, The Office season one to The Office season two is they're just tweaks, really. A couple of characters kind of shift slightly. Michael Scott becomes a lot more likeable. Um, Dwight becomes a bit more kind of like the, the edges are a bit smoother um, but bet- between the transition between season one of Parks and season two of Parks is enormous the tone shifts you know quite dramatically not to like you know kind of gritty holocaust drama but in terms <laughs> of the focus of the comedy uh, pretty much everything about the show uh, the characters the relationships of the characters is almost like they started and just like right we got the right people <laughs> We just got them in the wrong order, much like uh, Eric Morecambe's piano playing. You know what I mean? Yeah. The um, I th- I think the 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 clearest way to view that to to see that change is when you look at the the first episode of the second season, Pawnee Zoo, which was the first episode I saw. I watched on a plane uh, flying over to the states and instantly fell in love because the tone of it is so much uh, kind of uh, warmer. And a lot less. Uh, it has a lot less of the awkwardness of the office, but also it has this, you know, clear vein of absurdity that they tried to tamp down a little bit in the first season, uh, to the extent that the episode is based entirely around accidentally gay marrying two penguins. Mm, yeah, uh, and it's interesting to note as well because I mean I've watched uh, the first few episodes of, of season two as well this week. That like, that's the really first time you get. Um, 
outsider characters that from outside the Parks and Rec department. You, mm. you know, Joan Calamezzo turns up for the first time. Uh, I forget the lady's name, but she's the lead, the kind of the head of the kind of like, you know, concerned Christian parents group who is yep. trying to. Yeah, she's in it quite a lot. Um, and you know, those recurring characters start to come in, and you know, that's that is what made Parks special: the the place and the people. Yeah, you also get uh, two of my favourite early recurring characters, which is April's gay boyfriend and his boyfriend. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it features one of my very favourite scenes in the whole run of the show, which is when they hand her a uh, a nope poster done in the Shepherd Ferry Hope poster, and they mm. hand it to her, and she says, how did you make this? And they go, and she says, oh, uh, Photoshop. And he goes, oh, not understanding. And then April just goes, computers. And she goes, oh! <laughs> um, which is just a lovely little character moment and uh, I think gets to the heart of that sweetness. That's also the first time that you see, you get the sense that April is more than just kind of a sarcastic reflex. You can really start to see her kind of softening and the sense that uh, underneath this exterior is someone who, you know, is kind of genuinely good-hearted and could do great things eventually and that uh, becomes clearer and, and kind of becomes one of the, the more... Uh, heartwarming uh, spines of the season as it goes on. Mm. People have talked about um, kind of town of Pawnee becoming like being kind of the nearest thing to a live action Springfield. Um, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think that's one of the things that really uh, drew me to it. And you really see that beginning in the second season when they start interview- introducing those outsider characters and they're people who will, like Purd Hapley, who be kind, kind of become. Uh, consistent characters just showing up every so often to deliver dialogue and be very very funny um, and the the idea of this is a, a functioning town populated by well-meaning idiots who will mm. uh, riot at a moment's notice um, and are very easily kind of led and will stand up and shout horrible things in town hall meetings and things like that and you really get the sense that they are building a fully realised comic universe complete with, you know, uh, institutions and evil uh, corporations and things like that that they can drop in every so often to make uh, yeah, social commentary jokes or, the, like you say, the, the, the two Christian characters, the husband and wife, the husband who is clearly gay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, one of my favourite one of my favourite things about the final season is that they never had them acknowledge that. Like those yeah. two are still together, and he is still obviously gay. And I like the idea that they they never kind of went the obvious route of having him realise that. I always thought that was quite nice that they that with those two characters, you think, oh, they actually do like each. They they clearly do love each other, even though they are one of them is a closeted homosexual. Um, it's uh, that's kind of where for me, like uh, of all the uh, missteps that Arrested Development season four takes, that is, I think, without doubt, my least favourite. Uh, the well, the worst, the very kind of worst sin they commit is when, you know, they actually tell Tobias he's gay, mm. which is kind of the and it completely ruins a big part of that character. Yeah, I think that the that that was the thing that the show really was good at is they could keep running jokes like that running on in the background, but at the same time, when they had like a plot point that was really important, they were clearly building towards more often than not, they didn't drag it out. So, for example, things like Leslie and Ben, their relationship, how that was uh, kind of, you know, there was a will-they-won't-they sort of thing which resolved itself much quicker than most sitcoms would do. It got them together. Once they were together, there was a bit of, you know, uh, it was up in the air for a little bit of whether or not they could get together because it would uh, impact her political ambitions, but then they got married and it was fine. Or something like the April and Andy relationship where, it starts off as their friends and then they have, you know, chemistry and they start to flirt with each other. Then they actually get together and they almost instantly get married and they cut out all of that sort of stuff. And then they never have, you know, like the office would do when they would get characters together, they would throw uh, obstacles in the way and they would kind of maybe think about breaking them up, but not really. The show never had that kind of disingenuous uh, way of uh, ginning up the drama. Mm. But it's, it's, you know, he's not having a will they, won't they? It's just get them together and let's get on with it. Hmm. Give them a three-legged dog and, and set them on their way. And, yeah, Champion, the one of the <laughs> the, the great uh, unsung heroes of the show. Um, and But I think that also kind of hurt the show a little bit in sort of the, the fifth and sixth season because I think as the show went along, it started to run out 
of obstacles for Leslie to overcome. Um, because basically everyone got together, everyone started going, like having their dreams come true and things like that. And even though they would throw things like the recall election and thing at her, they always felt like they were really struggling to think of things for her to oppose over sort of a long period of time. And even the sh- though the show worked brilliantly on an episode-to-episode basis, it always felt like they were trying to recapture the overarching narrative drive of something like the third season, which is the the best, where they had the uh, the, the the Harvest Festival, the mm. trying to get the government reopened, uh, April and Andy getting together, Ben and Leslie, you know, it had all these ongoing plot lines that felt natural and they progressed nicely. And they never quite managed to find the right balance. They found... Um a lot of characters kind of flagging and kind of left in the breeze. By the end of it, hardly anyone works for the parks. Uh, sorry, obviously by the end of it, no one works for the parks department anymore. But uh, as as we kind of got through, uh, obviously Anne never worked for it. Uh, kind of um, Andy gets kind of shoehorned in. Tom leaves the parks department, but they have to kind of keep contriving reasons for him to kind of hang around. Um, and I often felt like, especially with Tom, they kind of sometimes ran out of stuff for him to do. Tom and Anne, especially, um, yeah. like when they got Anne together with Chris, it would it, they, that was something to keep them occupied. But then they'd break up, and she, they, whenever they had her, there was a season where they just gave her a string of like boyfriends who uh, only lasted one episode each, mm. and it really did feel like they were going no idea what to do with Anne this episode. So we'll just say that she's dating someone and have a few kind of funny lines said to camera, and that'd be more or less it. And even though the friendship between Leslie and Anne was like the best, one of the best things of the show for so long to the extent that when she showed up in the finale and Leslie just kind of goes, Anne's here and runs up and just hugs her for a really long time. Mm. It's just this kind of thing where you think, I didn't know I wanted to see her like so happy to see someone she hasn't seen in a long time. And it was really, really kind of funny, but also quite moving in a way the show did really well. Uh, You know, there were also times where you'd watch it and you just think, you know, it's it's we're not really sure why Rosita Jones is on the show anymore, other than that she was the kind of inciting incident of the whole thing. Yeah, and it's weird, isn't it? The the the, the whole show was conceived of as a spin off for her as an actress mm. and then, you know, a few seasons in she's kind of surplus to requirements almost. Mm. And even though she was always really, really good, I think it was just that they had such they had one of the best casts on television, all these people who were amazingly funny and talented and it was just at times just so busy and full, particularly once, uh, you know, like Retta and Jim O'Hare started to demonstrate their comic potential. I think that just forced her out as it went along. Mm, mm, absolutely. Where do you think Parks is going to kind of rank uh, amongst the kind of the annals of, of, of kind of network sitcoms? Uh, because the one thing that surprised me is just how uh, kind of stealthily it had um, kind of won my affections. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, it was... I watched it from the beginning. Uh, not, I mean, I wasn't... I'm not like, you know, Parks and Recreation hipster here, Ed, and say I was kind of watching it before it was cool. But, like, uh, I think it was maybe into the third season, and then I started watching it from the beginning. I didn't kind of come in halfway through, like, somebody, like Johnny Come Lately with the, the Penguin episode, like you, Ed. Um, but um, uh, it was a show that I kind of watched and just kind of thought, oh, I'll just keep watching every week or whatever, and it was kind of just ticking along. And then when it came to the point where I realised it was ending, I was kind of almost devastated that it was ending. And then when it was over, it was a, you know, it was a big kind of uh, emotional kind of hit because I loved it so much and I didn't realise it it kind of very kind of like sneakily done that to me. Mm, Yeah, I I remember when NBC used to have that great two-hour block, which was um, The Office, Parks and Rec, 30 Rock and Community all on at the same time, all kind of running at their peak during the sort of... Those were the days... Mm, yeah, just this this great two hour block of shows that were all, uh, you know, uh, The Office was still very very good. Thirty Rock has was great. Um, Parks and and Community were both just starting and really hitting their stride. That Parks was always the one I really enjoyed, but it was never the one that was like my the the top of those because I don't think it was as out and out hilarious as community as as Community and Thirty Rock could be or as. Uh, or as as uh, ambitious of those two shows was, but I think mm. that that the affection that it had for its characters and the warmth that came across in the fact that it was essentially a show about just people loving each other and being nice 
was what very you know won me over it also helped that it was really really funny a lot of the time and most of the time would have some just kind of amazing pratfall from chris pratt hmm. um i wonder if they called them that in the script i hope so um when they would have uh you know something that would really make you laugh and then you know took at the heartstrings in a way that didn't feel manipulative mm. i think it's subtlety played against it in terms of standing out against these these kind of brighter and brasher shows but gave it a lot more uh gave it a, a great more uh, a lot more legs mm. and interesting that of those four shows that aired in that block I would argue that out of all four of those, Parks is easily the most consistent. Yeah, I would say so as well. It never really had a huge drop off in quality. Uh, it remained, you know, funny and heart heartwarming, and it just kept it kept growing and evolving in a way that those shows didn't. Uh, you know, like Thirty Rock remained pretty much in stasis for its entire run. It was always very much about the same sort of relationships until its final season when it did all of that kind of resolution stuff. Uh, and so I think that it was the one that felt like it could surprise you more as it went along rather than uh, that it, because it didn't seem, it didn't really seem restricted by its setting in a way that the others were mm. to the extent that, you know, as you say, most of the cast didn't, and didn't work in the parks department at one point or another. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think um, parks is um, also kind of in my, uh, kind of favourite shows because of just how ridiculously weird the guest stars were. Mm. Like, it, it's weird to think that in the last couple of seasons, like, Jeff Tweedy was in it, mm -hmm. um, and as were Yola Tengo and the Decemberists, uh, in the same episode as Genuine, who <laughs> did make a couple of appearances. Then we had Werner Herzog, yeah. uh, playing Werner Herzog as a landlord. Um, <laughs> Bill Murray, uh, and yeah, just a kind of a mate and a Joe Biden in that I think that that, that might be my defining uh, Parks and Recreation moment where uh, Leslie meets Joe Biden and just can't stop touching his face, <laughs> <laughs> which is brilliant. Yeah, I think, uh, or yeah, just the sheer number of political guest stars because they had Biden, they had uh, they had John McCain, they mm -hmm. had. Um, they had just loads of these like political heavy hitters who clearly liked the show a great deal, uh, and who were willing to come on and play exaggerated versions of themselves. But you know, like you say, they managed to get Bill Murray to come on the show dead, admittedly, <laughs> playing a body in a coffin and then a little bit on a video. Yeah. But that's a that's amazing that they always talked about that was their their dream was that they would get Bill Murray in to play the mayor. And that seemed like something that they would never get to happen. It was like Community's Pike dream of having him play uh, Jeff's dad. Mm. Um, you know, it just seemed like it wouldn't happen because he, you know, he's uh, he's this this guy who I think uh, Mike Schur described him as a spirit who wanders America photobombing people's wedding sh snaps. Mm. Um, you know, he just doesn't seem like someone who would appear on a sitcom even, you know, in one episode. So for them to get him was just this amazing final gift in the, the the second to last episode do you have a do you have a kind of favorite recurring character on on parks i think it kind of has to be purred <laughs> the purred most a very literal news anchor yeah i think just his bizarre method of speaking <laughs> never failed to delight me um i also really liked the accountant who found ben hilarious yeah. and whose heart was constantly broken because he would walk in hire him and then leave almost instantly <laughs> yeah yeah um and i I love that towards the end ben kind of played up his kind of superstar status when he went mm. to visit the accountants yeah he always had one line prepared that he knew would kill and then mm. the guy would just like call for someone to come in and hear the joke again yeah that's a great that's a great bit in, in i think right in the last episode where tom's talking to him about expanding his business and says Hey, number nerd, and he's just like, I'm a state senator. <laughs> Stop <laughs> calling me that. Um, I have to say, I very much enjoy slash am repelled by the Saperstein family. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, John Raffio is might be the worst human of all time, um, <laughs> but then he's not because uh, his sister is much worse. Yeah, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa is the worst, <laughs> as he as he introduced her. <laughs> yeah, great performance by Jenny Slate. Yeah. Um, and yeah, kind of. Of course, he's going to fake his own death. 
uh, <laughs> and not get away with it. Um, but also invent his own champagne. Um, yes, in the little Easter egg that, that was great. Yeah, 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 I liked that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of it was quite dense with jokes, not in a kind of Arrested Development way, um, but they really did kind of write it within an inch of its life, didn't they? Yeah, I think it, it was the sort of show where the story came first, but then clearly after they'd written the 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 final draft, that they would sit there and think, you know, how can we, you know, what's the most hilarious sign we can have in the background? What kind of uh, minor characters can we have just show up for literally a single line of dialogue? Uh, I think it was the sort of that. I think that's one of the things that gave it its cultish adoration. Obviously, one part was that the character of Leslie Nope is so ingratiating and is someone who is so. Uh, so easy to love and you just want to come back and, and spend time with her and her, her great funny friends but mm. the atten- the attention to detail that the writers put into writing every episode and to really uh, playing playing to their strengths and uh, rewarding people for paying attention was uh, certainly in the last season where they were kind of paying off a lot of that stuff uh, really I think is why people like you and I and you know the, the millions of other people who love the show uh, really responded to it and kept coming back. Mm. There was a great sight gag that I noticed today. This is kind of a, a pointless detail, uh, but there was a great sight gag in the uh, the, the penguin episode, uh, the Pawnee Zoo episode, where uh, after that she's married the gay penguins, there's a bit of graffiti on the wall that says, the, the, I think the, the penguins are called um, Flippers and Tucks, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of graffiti on the wall that says, it's Flippers and Eve, not Flippers and Steve. <laughs> which, I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> you brought that up. Because that was going to be my like example of the greatest psychic <laughs> joke in the show. It's something that just made me laugh every single time I saw it. It's such a a great. It's just a great background detail and so indicative of the kind of uh, weird stupidity of porn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's kind of like a kind of a bum note uh, to to the kind of finale of Parks, which is you know such a joyous show and kind of full of uh, affection. Uh, in the show itself, and and for the 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 fans hold for it that uh, the kind of finale was kind of slightly overshadowed, or you know completely overshadowed by uh, the kind of untimely death of Harris Wills, who uh, was a writer and producer and star on the show as well, um, and yeah, that was that was that was shit. Yeah, that was that was really horrible. Um, I was on Twitter when the news broke, and my first response was to seeing R.I.P. Harris Wills was to laugh. Because uh, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast, you talking you two to me, but there was a recurring joke on there where they would say R.I.P. Harris Whittles because he guest starred on one episode and then left abruptly halfway to because he had basically skived off work to record it and he mm. had to go back to the to the writers' room and write another episode of Parks. Uh, and so it, that was my first thought was, oh, people are referencing that sort of thing. And then obviously the the tone of the rest of the tweets were, you know, he was a great talent, and you know it was just this horrifying thing that a guy who's so young so talented who was so uh funny and so likable um from his performances on parks war so the many times he appeared on comedy bang bang and analyze fish and all the other podcasts he did uh for him to just die in this way that was just so so incre- increasingly sad as more details of it uh emerged was uh just really kind of heartbreaking mm. i think like it's weird that he is kind of there because i the very first episode of Comedy Bang Bang on Comedy Death Ray, as it was then that I ever listened to, was the first uh, Harris Harris's phone corner, mm. which then went on to become Harris's phone corner. Um, um, so he was kind of like almost my gateway into that kind of alt comedy scene, and then kind of saw his name kind of pop up on Parks and Recreation, then kind of got to know his face, and you know he was such an integral part of it. Um, it's kind of just like horrible that you know. Literally a day, two days was it before the final episode aired? aired? Uh, it was the Thursday before, so it was sort of four days before, yeah. Wow. I mean, that's just kind of, yeah, awful. And like the, the, the you know, the outpouring of, of kind of like affection and grief has been really lovely to see. Well, I think someone suggested a comment who it was on Twitter that just said, go through his feed and retweet something that'll make you laugh. And mm. a, lot, a lot of people did that. And, you know, he was just an incredibly funny guy. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was talking to someone about this on on Facebook. Some a friend of mine who also listened. She, uh, she said that her first introduction to to comedy Bang Bang was the first farts and procreation episode that he did with 
uh, Adam Scott and Chelsea Peretti and sort of just sharing some of his fam- fa- our favourite jokes. And the uh, the joke he told, which shocked uh, St. Vincent, which was, <laughs> I'm thinking of opening a small plate Irish and Jamaican restaurant. It's going to be called Tapas the Morning to Jar. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, elicited an audible "oh" from uh, Saint Vincent, who didn't really know how to uh, to process it, is still one of the funniest things I've ever heard. To the extent that even just tapping out the punchline of that made me laugh. You know, it's so profoundly tortured and stupid a joke, <laughs> but it the way he sold it was just was just amazing, and he was such a, a naturally funny uh, person. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um... Have you got a favourite kind of parks and recreation episode? Uh, I think the penguin one is definitely the one that I always go to, just because it was uh, it was the one that made me instantly kind of fall in love with the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think overall probably my favourite is the the Harvest Festival episode, uh, yeah, because a introduces little Sebastian, who is uh, again a great uh, animal extra on the show and an integral part of the show's dense mythology. Um, but also it, it has kind of the, it's the most, probably the most triumphant episode, uh, moments for, for Leslie managing to rescue the parks department and as a culmination of this six episode arc, which, uh, is, you know, some of the best storytelling of the show and it feel is really funny and it's just so, so heartwarming in the best possible way. Mm. I, I've got a real thing for any of the episodes where Tammy turns up. Mm. Um, and with her kind of near psychotic uh, and aggressive nudity. Uh, <laughs> I think one where Ron is on stage and she's sat there with her legs open and <laughs> her skirt hitched up, uh, you know, giving giving him the full basic instinct is, uh, you know, kind of horrifying, but also their, their kind of comedic chemistry, obviously they are husband and wife, is is kind of brilliant. And mm. I like it. I, I thought she had a good um, send off in the uh, the last episode where she kind of sexually destroyed a library, <laughs> which is which takes some doing. But you know, she she can pull that off. Uh, another good one that I just remembered in terms of you know uh, episodes that had two characters' uh, names in the title. Usually it was uh, uh, Ron and Tammy, or uh, uh, I think the best one uh, of the most recent season for me was uh, Leslie and Ron, in which the two characters who have had a falling out, which was probably the most heart, heart-rending part of the show, for a large part of it was because it felt like your parents had divorced or something. Um, mm. That these two characters who were, who were just so close for so long have had this terrifying falling out. Um, the episode where they're forced to be in the same room together and discuss everything that went wrong in their friendship, I think was a real uh, late, late-run highlight and reminded me a lot of the Mad Men episode the suitcase, mm-hmm. uh, which also trapped two characters in one room and forced them to hash out their interpersonal differences. Uh, I think that was the show at, at both its funnest and its uh, its kind of saddest and its warmest. Mm. I think the image of of you know all the characters returning to see if they've made up to find Leslie dancing and uh, Duke Silver playing kind of saxophone farts uh, <laughs> is is quite a lovely little moment for those characters. Um, but that's what the show is, and that's why we love it. It's a, it's a, it's you know, twenty one minutes a week of lovely moments that are kind of warm and fuzzy, and also quite fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, with some of the the funniest and loveliest goofballs uh, in TV history. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is. You know, pretty much every character is an absolute goof, which is great. Yeah, I think. It's. I think that it was a great testament to the versatility of the cast that anyone could be the kind of outrageous source of comic fun or the kind of straight man responding it to it to it all. Yeah. Uh, ev- everyone got their weird moment of of lunacy. Even someone like Ben, who in one episode got to have an emotional breakdown while dressed as Batman, <laughs> which was a moment that was entirely in keeping with his character and his nerdy in- uh, interests, mm. but also <laughs> it was is just a delightfully weird and, and hilarious image. Yeah, and it's uh, kind of a testament to the show that um, uh, Cones of Dunshire uh, <laughs> has appeared on Kickstarter and uh, currently is not going to make its goal. Oh, that's a terrible shame. Um, yeah, I think it is. It is either fallen short or it's it's you know 
uh, already fell short, as it were. Which is, it seems crazy that someone would actually try and make a game out of something that is deliberately kind of impenetrable. Yeah, it's 10 days to go. Uh, so by, by the time this airs, probably 8 or 9 days to go. And they've got 45 grand and they need 125. So surely Adam Scott's going to pony up for that, isn't he? I'd like, to, I'd like to think so. Just kind of make this insane game a reality and let it join uh, Galentine's Day and treat yourself as uh, things that have bled over from the show into real real life. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's our look at Parks and Recreation, uh, a show that is uh, much loved. And I don't feel like it's going to be much missed because I feel like um, it's, it's, you know, it got sent off in such a warm and lovely way. That, yeah. uh, you know, you know, I feel I feel like I'll see those characters again. Uh, maybe not anything new, but it'll be kind of, you know, not. It's not like a big kind of void it's left. No, I, I think it, it, and like we say, it leaves at a point where you think I I'll be perfectly happy to revisit that show again and again, and it won't feel like the ending has marred it or anything like that. It just feels like you know this this show went out on top, and I'm gonna it, it's gonna live. A, a long and full life in syndication and on Netflix and things like that where it will accrue more fans who should have watched it when it was on air mm, absolutely um, yeah so goodbye Parks and Recreation and uh, you know thanks for uh, uh, please and thank you uh, as Ron, Ron Swanson uh, might say um, we'll be back next week uh, with something uh, enlightening I'm sure uh, but until then um, why not find us on Facebook and kind of like you know like us or find us on Twitter and follow us uh, find the podcast and subscribe to us all those kind of things um, but yeah until next week uh, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me up in horsey heaven here's a thing Trade your legs for angels' wings And once we've all said goodbye You take a running leap and you learn to fly Episode end.